Our scripture reading today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I invite you to read along with me in your Bible or in your bulletin. And so, brothers and sisters, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but rather as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for solid food. Even now you are still not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For as long as there is jealousy and quarreling among you, you are not of the flesh. Are you not of the flesh and behaving according to human inclinations? For when one says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. The one who plants and the one who waters have a common purpose, and each will receive wages according to the labor of each, for we are God's servants working together. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Each builder must choose with care how to build on it. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that has been laid. That foundation is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, the work of each builder will become visible, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If what has been built on the foundation survives, the builder will receive a reward. If the work is burned up, the builder will suffer loss. The builder will be saved, but only as through fire. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Like Connor, I'm grateful for the choir this morning, for the bells, Bonnie, Don, Julie, Kathy, for your leadership today. I'm thankful for your presence in here, and I'm also thankful to have my mom and dad uh, here, right over there. Uh, next to a deer behind the choir. So thankful to have had them here from Nashville for the weekend um, and to be in worship because we don't get to do that very often anymore to be in worship at the same time. So it was March 11th, 2020. Man, you remember those times? <laughs> I just met a girl named Adair. The thing COVID was happening and we didn't really know what it was. People were starting to not go to restaurants as much. The NBA shut down. Do you remember that? When the NBA shut down? Churches around Northbrook, where I was currently serving, were starting to close Sunday services, so we did the same, thinking that we would open back up in like a week or two, and then maybe Easter. <laughs> you remember that? Trying to push that, trying to figure that out. And of course, at Northbrook, we didn't have inside in-person worship again until months later. And so we put together the online worship stuff. The, we added live stream capabilities. We looked for ways to worship outside and to do stuff with masks on. And for the first time in my life, if you don't know me, my dad is a pastor, so I've been at church my whole life. For the first time in my life, I did not go to a worship service on a Sunday consistently. I stayed home in my pajamas. <laughs> I drank my coffee. I watched worship service in bed. And then I played Nintendo 64. And I saw how a person who doesn't go to church lives. And I've got to be honest, at least for the first few weeks, 
It wasn't bad. <laughs> I'm just going to say that. Adair and I even emulated that feeling when we went to a Halloween party this year. We dressed up in our pajamas and robes, complete with mugs of coffee, and called ourselves agnostics on a Sunday morning. <laughs> but I did. I experienced life without church for a few weeks. But i got to be honest about this, too. It didn't take me long to miss it. I miss the people, I miss the music, I miss the community, I missed a common purpose. But it was fascinating for, for me to experience for the first time in my life not going to church on a Sunday morning consistently. Last fall there was a study released by Pew Research and its subject had to do with the amount of Americans who don't go to church anymore, who are leaving Christianity and joining the growing number of either atheists, agnostics, or nothing in particular, and we call them nuns. And currently, 64% of the U.S., including children, are Christian. Nuns account for 30%. 6% are other religions. More specifically, among those currently, I thought this was interesting, among those currently in their 30s, millennials, a third of the, those of us who were raised Christian have left. A third. And the next generation is going to surely see some growth in the number of folks leaving and if trends continue by 2070 it's it's projected that Christians will fall from 64% in the US to between 40 and 45%. And the nuns, you all thought that was funny. The nuns will continue to grow. And my question is this, why? Just curious. Like why? Why are people leaving? Why is there a decline? Well, according to the study some have left for a couple of reasons. Some because they said, I don't need religion anymore. I can cope better without it. Okay. Some have left because the church has become too political and they need an escape from politics. Maybe some of you are in that boat. Many have left because they don't trust the institutions anymore and they don't trust clergy. And some have left because they enjoyed the life they found in COVID and have stuck with the non-church life. In COVID, many realized they didn't want or need communal accountability. It's not for me, they said. It's too much of a challenge. So they've stayed away. And I kind of empathize with all those reasons. I do, I really do. But in my experience with folks who have sworn off the church or who have decided not to come back, the reasons are a little bit more nuanced. I've had conversations with people who have left because they found church inadequate and uncomfortable with hard conversations and tough questions. They said, you're unwilling to wrestle with God. I had one conversation with somebody who left because they felt like the church just wants me to be just like them, and I'm not. One person told me that they distanced themselves from the church because in a moment of tragedy, a moment that changed their life forever, the church wouldn't listen to them or embrace them, the church just offered answers that they thought they needed. And that person said, all I wanted to know was that I wasn't alone and that somebody heard me in my darkest moment. But it didn't happen and I haven't been back since. That kind of experience, it seems to be much of the experience with folks who have left the church. They've experienced pain. They've experienced something I call church hurt which is a little different than other hurts, I think. Church hurt is a little different. They've been wounded and they can't stay, so they leave. 
In her book, Searching for Sunday, Rachel Held Evans talks about a moment when she lost her faith and her faith community and the woundedness that came out, came out of it. Listen to this. There are recovery programs for people grieving the loss of a parent, sibling, or spouse. You can buy books on how to cope with the death of a pet or work through the anguish, anguish of a miscarriage. We speak openly with one another about the bereavement that can accompany a layoff, a move, a diagnosis, or a dream deferred. But no one really teaches you how to grieve the loss of your faith and your faith community. You're on your own for that. And she says, it became increasingly clear that my fellow Christians didn't want to listen to me or grieve with me or walk down this frightening road with me. They wanted to fix me. They wanted to wind me up like an old-fashioned toy and send me back to the fold with a painted smile on my face and tiny symbols in my hands. Friends, in my experience, there are so many people who feel that way, who have grown up with a road map, with a way of life, and for good reasons, they've lost it. They've lost that sense of community and faith. They have been wounded and scarred, and that Pew Research study says that for many reasons, people may continue to leave. But it also shares that the majority of those who have left or may leave, even those who have been wounded by the church, are still hungry for something. It says they're still hungry for meaning and faith and belonging and Jesus. They still want to know Jesus. People still want a community and a way to connect and they desperately miss Jesus. They need him and they need community and some are at a loss for how to find either of them ever again. You know, it's interesting when I think about all those stats I just handed you, you're welcome by the way, when I think about all those stats, all those reasons for leaving, all the dissatisfaction with the, the church or the wandering away from it, the church hurt, when I listen to those experiences, I often find myself sitting with this question, have I been someone's reason for leaving? But then I'm always led to another question, and it's this one, how can I be someone's reason for staying? In today's passage from 1 Corinthians, Paul uses metaphors to help the Corinthian church understand what they are experiencing. They're in the midst of their own hardship, striving to figure things out, and Paul uses a few metaphors. Paul first calls them babies. <laughs> I can't feed you solids yet, he says spiritually, because you can't digest them. You're not old enough. You're infants, <laughs> because you act like it. <laughs> That's what he says. The very idea, he says, of choosing sides, which preacher you like best, that kind of stuff, it's foolish, and it's like a child. So, Paul calls it like he sees it, I guess. <laughs> Next, in some fairly green language, Paul shares that he and Apollos are simply workers. God is the one doing the growing. They're servants pointing to the master. God does the work, and the job of planting and watering are long and drawn out, but God makes it worth it, I promise. And then Paul talks about what happens if we don't take the time to adequately grow and nurture our faith. Paul uses the metaphor of a house and a builder. And Paul mentions how important it is to build with the right material. I saw another translation of this on a roofing advertisement. Roof with the best or leak with the rest. That's a gentle laugh, isn't it? <laughs> 
You got to build it right. And Paul starts with Jesus. Jesus is the foundation, but the building is up to us. How we build and what we build is very important. What we build with is incredibly important. And if we don't do it right, we're in trouble. This is what the message translation sounds like. This is how he says it. Take particular care in picking out your building materials. Eventually, there's going to be an inspection. And if you use cheap materials, you'll be found out. <laughs> the inspection will be thorough and rigorous. You won't get by with a thing. If your work passes inspection, fine. But if it doesn't, your part of the building is going to be torn out and we're going to start over. <laughs> Reminds me of that other construction phrase, doing it right costs less than doing it over. <laughs> and I think that's what Paul is getting at. One, build your foundation on Christ. Two, don't build with cheap materials. And three, judgment day is going to reveal the quality either way. <laughs> Friends, when I read something like this and I think about the loss of folks from our faith communities and the wounding that has occurred over the years, I can't help but ask, have we been building our churches and our faith with the right materials? When the inspector comes to do an inspection on our house, what is he going to find? Is he going to find a house built with sturdy walls of discipleship and frames of, of deep relationship with Jesus and each other? Or will he find shoddy building constructed merely on, I don't know, attendance numbers, money, happy-go-lucky faith? Is he going to find a community dedicated to the folks on the inside? Or is he going to find a connected group of people with a purpose that's big enough to reach out to those who need a friend? Have we built our house around Jesus? Have we built our walls with grace and redemption and resurrection? Have we framed our spiritual home with the stories of the prodigal son and mercy and forgiveness? Or will we see the trends continue and not only lose the one that God left the 99 to find, but also the second and the third and the fourth? Frankly, if the trends continue, it may be time to do some renovation. I don't know. And if we want to embrace folks who have been left and been hurt, we've got to be willing to acknowledge our shortcomings, yeah, but also that we are wounded too. We've got to be willing to confess our woundedness to one another. There's a community called L'Arche. Has anybody heard of the L'Arche communities? They're all around the world. They were started, and it's an organization with homes all over the world where adults with disabilities are paired with helpers, and they live together in a home, in a community. And the founder tells the story of Daniel, one of these adults. And Daniel's parents, they didn't want him. So he ended up going from one institution to the next, to the next. And he carried those deep wounds wherever he went. And even after he was incorporated into a large community, he would hide his anguish and grief and wounds and the founder, Jean Manier, says, Daniel felt guilty for existing because nobody wanted him as he was. <laughs> and he says, what we must do is walk with the wound instead of fleeing from it. We cannot accept it until we discover that we are loved by God just as we are and that the Holy Spirit in a mysterious way is living at the very center of that wound. It seems from that, you can surmise that maybe woundedness is our path. Being honest about our wounds might be our method of discipleship, our method of witness to the hope and grace of God. When Jesus first appeared after he was crucified, what did he do? He appeared to the disciples and he showed them what? His hands, his scars, 
his wounds. That is our leader. That's, that's our CEO. That is our savior. The one who comes to us to show us that we are not alone, that the God of the universe is wounded too, and maybe there is healing if we only share those with one another. Henry Nouwen says in his book, The Wounded Healer, nobody, nobody escapes being wounded. We are all wounded people, whether physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. The main question is not, how can we hide those wounds so we don't have to be embarrassed, but rather, how can we put our woundedness in the service of others? When our wounds cease to be a source of shame and become a source of healing, we have become wounded healers. Maybe if we ask that question, how can we put our woundedness in the service of others, maybe that's when the renovation begins. Maybe then our house begins to look a little bit more, I imagine, like a hospital for the hurting, where healing is possible and the scars begin to fade. This past week, Bonnie Raitt took home the Grammy Award for Song of the Year. Have you all listened to that song? Raise your hand. Anybody listen to Bonnie Raitt's Song of the Year? Whew. If you haven't, grab a tissue. Bonnie Raitt said in her acceptance speech that she had heard this beautiful real-life story, and the song just kind of wrote, wrote itself. The song is a story about a woman named Olivia Zand who has been in the midst of darkness and grief for years because of the loss of her 25-year-old son. She's carrying these wounds. She's, she's been living in them and with them for a while. At one point, she sings this. She sings, no knife can carve away the stain. No drink can drown regret. They say Jesus brings you peace and grace. Well, he ain't found me yet. She's living in darkness with pain and with deep wounds. But one night, the song goes, she gets a knock on the door from a stranger who has been looking for her. And she doesn't know why, but something tells her to trust him, and so she lets him in, and the man goes on to help her find healing in her pain. The last verse and chorus, do you remember it? It goes like this. He sat down, she says, and took a deeper breath, and then he looked right in my face. I heard about the son you lost, he said, how you left without a trace. I've spent years trying to find you so I could finally let you know it was your son's heart that saved me and a life you gave us both. And she sings, and just like that, your life can change. Look what the angels send. I lay my head upon his chest and I was with my boy again. I spent so long in darkness, never thought the night would end, but somehow grace has found me and I had to let him in. That's how the Spirit of God builds a house that's strong and that lasts. He takes our hurt and our pain and he finds a way to mend, to redeem, and in turn we finally find a way to let him in and just like that, life can change. We are wounded people. We carry scars that are deep and the truth is sometimes hurt people hurt people. But in my experience, Juliana Hatfield is right. A heart that hurts is a heart that works. And lucky for us, we know a God whose heart hurts, whose heart works, and who is pretty good at finding ways to mend some old wounds. 
And when we let him in, when we let that grace take hold and that scar begins to fade, his heart will begin to beat for ours. Let us pray. God, this morning we remember the psalmist who said that you heal the brokenhearted and you bind up their wounds. We remember that promise and we take hold of it today. God, we confess that some days we are wounded, but some days we do the wounding. So be with us, God. Be in us. Work through us. Help us to find ways to let grace in and to take up the invitation of the wounded healer, the wounded Savior, who invited us to a life of vulnerability, all to welcome just one. In Jesus' name, amen.